Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Stephen Paul. Stephen is the CEO of Valued, an award-winning cloud accounting firm in County Durham. Stephen, welcome. Great to have you on the programme with us today. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me on the programme. It's an absolute pleasure, nonetheless. Now, Stephen, um, this podcast is, of course, all about leadership, and good and effective leadership is particularly relevant now, um, especially with everything going on in the wake of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, in your case, how has it been for you over the last few weeks trying to lead a business through this crisis? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a twofold answer, to be honest. I've got leadership in terms of my business, in terms of valued, but I've also got leadership in terms of our clients that we, we look after. So we've got two different types of responsibility that we're having to do. I'm a firm believer of leaders have to lead from the front. We have to roll our sleeves up. We have to give the, the direction, the support, the guidance. But our team needs to know that actually we're in the trenches with them. We will help them. We will support them as much as we possibly can. Now, obviously, given the coronavirus situation that we've got, what we are seeing is a lot of homeworking. So we've had to make sure that the business can still sustain. We've got 16 employees within the business that have to be able to to work from home. Um, But also, we had a lot of, uh, exactly the same time, we had a lot of clients that have a lot of uncertainty right now in terms of their funding, their their finance, their business. So it's trying to make sure that actually I as a leader can actually help the team to position their advice with the clients, but also I can help my team to make sure that they are comfortable working from home and everything in terms of isolation and other factors. Yeah, for sure, because it's really important um, at this point in time, especially to note the fact that it's not just a one man or one woman show being the leader of a business. It is very much a team effort, none more so than now. It certainly is. And I think that's one of the big things for me is as a leader, we want to portray that we're strong. We know what we're doing. We we have no doubts in our mind about the direction we're taking in the business. But actually, I sat down with my team a week ago and said, this is where we are as a business. This is how coronavirus is going to affect us as a business. This is the best I know. And to be sure, to be honest, I actually showed some vulnerability with my team at that time and said, I don't know the answers to everything here. I can certainly help as much as I can. But I did express a little bit of vulnerability as a leader. The feedback from my team was that was just, it actually got quite emotional because the feedback from my team was, we're here to help, we're here to support. None of us are worried. We are here to to help value to succeed. Now, as a leader, that was different to what I always wanted to portray. I always wanted to portray the strength, the the we're okay, we're in it together, but actually the team helped me and they turned into leaders to a certain degree. It's really interesting that you mention uh, that example there of the rest of the team becoming leaders themselves and uh, really helping you because um, as a leader, you're not essentially ready-made, born with the qualities that you need to be a leader. Even when you're in a leadership position, there's still very much a learning process there, a development as it were, isn't there? It certainly is. It certainly is. And I think, uh, I mean, I went and I, I did a degree in accounts. I got A-levels and did all that sort of stuff. And I remember one day just going, right, actually, I've got to go and educate clients on how to do accounts. Um, it then developed, and I had a team working under me. It then developed even further, and you end up with your own business. And you can't, as, as an individual, nobody ever said, 
today you are a leader. Congratulations. Nobody gives you a book that talks just about well, this is leadership and once you've read that, you are 100% qualified to be a leader. It's a daily learning process for me and it's about us all working together. It's a bit like, a, I like it to a game of football sometimes. You can have star players on the pitch, but actually if the team don't work as a, a one unit, then it doesn't really work as well as what it could do. And you, you normally identify that there is problems within the business from the leadership down. Yeah, that's quite often the case um, when obviously a leadership isn't effective. It can often filter down and cause um, issues um, further sort of down the ladder, as it were. Um, it's quite interesting that, of course, you mentioned um, those other people around you as well. Um, is it important as a leader, especially within a business context, do you think, or well, even in any context, I should say, to create a positive environment which can really get the best out of those around you? Because they are incredibly important, aren't they? It certainly is. I think leadership, a big part of leadership is about the culture of the organization. It's about what happens when the leader's not in the business, when they're not in the building, per se. That's the culture of the organization. And to me, you've got to have that positivity, but you've got to have that honesty as well so that everybody knows what is happening with the business. Let me use an example. Today, um, we actually were recruiting a new member of staff. Um, The new member of staff's actually resigned before we went into lockdown a couple of weeks ago, he resigned a couple of weeks ago. He's got a new baby on the way. Uh, the new baby's uh, due to be born in three weeks' time. I had a decision to make. Did I want to, given the current circumstances of nobody able to, to go to the office, did I want to actually postpone his start date? Actually, the right thing as a leader there was for me to bring him on because we need that strength. And that actually sends a huge message to the team about actually we are here to help, we're here to support. So we brought Michael on. We actually did a, a, a probably the strangest induction I've ever done in my life. We have a, a daily team check-in. It's 9 o'clock in the morning at 4.30 in the afternoon. We use Google Hangouts to do that just to make sure that everyone's okay with the isolation and any other issues we've got. We invited Michael into that, the new employee today. And it was a bit of a baptism of fire because ultimately we didn't know how it was going to go. He's not actually going to the office to meet everybody. He's meeting everybody over his computer. Mm. Again, we, we have no rule book that says that's what we've got to do. You've just got to, to look at it and take the positives out of any situation and actually sometimes just, just go with your gut feeling and do what's best for your business. Yeah, definitely. And um, with that in mind, um, such effective leadership often kind of going unseen, especially in a business context, because when when we say good leaders, we think of people who are in the public eye, don't we? We think of politicians, we think of sports stars, we think of celebrities, business leaders especially. Their effective leadership can often go unseen, can't it? So with that in mind, do you think that good and positive leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in this country? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, I don't think good leadership is celebrated at all. Um, I think it's in the minority, to be perfectly honest. You, you have got people uh, that's, that build up sizable businesses, Richard Branson, for example, and you look to him as a leader, uh, Steve Jobs beforehand, Boris Johnson. You look at all of these people, and these are the people that either get put on a pedestal or they get shot down to say actually their leadership's good or it's not good. Um, I think ultimately it's... A lot of the economy is is run by small businesses, and a lot of the small businesses actually don't get enough praise for the hard work, the hard effort that they do. And they don't get the praise. They just people generally think that a lot of the business owners are making an absolute fortune in terms of money. They're not working as much as what they used to when they were employed. 
But actually, a lot of the small businesses that we deal with, they just want the reassurance, they want some help, they want some guidance because they're not good leaders in their own right. They're not aware that they are good leaders. But actually, as soon as you, you explain to them what they're doing right with their business, then that's just phenomenal. And it kind of gives them a lift. And that's something that we are at value. We're, we're really, really positive about is actually tell our clients what a good job they are doing in leading their business because not a lot of people do do that. Absolutely. I think um, people do uh, like a pat on the back, don't they, to know what they're doing well, and maybe that's not necessarily something that quite happens enough. Um, Earlier in your career in particular, Stephen, um, did you always imagine that you'd end up in a position of leadership yourself, even though, like you said earlier, there isn't a given day when someone just says, bang, you're a leader? Oh, great question. Um, The honest answer is no, I didn't. I always wanted to be an accountant. I don't know why I wanted to be an accountant, but I did. Um, I always wanted to help business owners. I could do that as an employee. I didn't have to have a team under me to do that. Um, with Valued, when we very first started up, there was going to be two of us in the business. We were never going to grow it. Very quickly, Valued, when we when we set it up, it grew. And it grew because we had a great reputation and people wanted to work with us. And that was fantastic. But actually, I didn't want to be a leader of a business that turned over millions of pounds. I didn't want to be a leader of a business that employed lots of people. I actually wanted the office, uh, the opposite. I wanted the time with my family. The reason I set the business up was my mum had terminal cancer. I wanted to spend time with her. I didn't want to, to have this big, unwieldy beast of a business. Um, so that kind of, the culture of the business changed over those years because I knew that I had to um, run with the business developing and I had to to um, to change where I was as a leader during that time um, to keep up with the demands in terms of sales and things there. But I, I don't think I genuinely ever said, set out to be a leader. I, if anything, those that know me, they know I'm quite a quiet person deep down. I, I, I talk to people, but actually I, I am quite an introvert at, at certain times as well. That's really interesting. Um, given your leadership style uh, then, uh, Stephen, as it were, um, is there anybody, it can be somebody prominent, it can be somebody just um, who you've encountered in your everyday life, is there anybody who's been an inspiration to you um, in terms of leadership and maybe had an influence on that style that you have? Yeah, there's, there's two people jump out to me in my life that have, uh, neither of them are recognised as leaders. Um, the first one was my mum. Yeah, the when I seen her going through the illness that she had before she passed away, that was the best form of leadership I've ever seen in my life. Um, seeing her actually talk to junior doctors, to, to trainee doctors, and say, look, ask me the questions you want to ask me so the next time you see these symptoms, you know what it is. My mum was actually misdiagnosed for a, a little period of time. But that was a great show of leadership, in my opinion, to actually educate the the community, yeah. And the other leader, which I, I always have to look up to, was a gentleman called Ian Harland. Uh, used to have Harland's accountants. Um, Ian was such an inspiration to me. He was the first guy that took a chance on me as an accountant. Uh, I started as a training and then worked up to partner. Um, but he displayed amazing leadership qualities. You always knew where you stood with Ian. Um, he just he took the time to understand the person um, and it was never just about seeing everybody in terms of a, a cost center or a profit center. It was always the individual behind 
um, of the person and make sure that they were actually they were happy in their job. So those are the two people that I look up to that the vast majority of your listeners will never have heard of. Um, in terms of people that uh, have have been heard of, I, I I go back to Steve Jobs a lot. To be perfectly honest, yeah, I look at some of the stuff that he did. Uh, I've read his pretty much all the books about him. Um, I think we can learn. Um, but those are, those are probably the, the three people, but particularly my mum and Ian Holland. Absolutely. And looking at those first two examples, especially, it is another um, shining um, example, as I say, about how good leadership can so often um, go unseen because these aren't figures of prominence. Um, before uh, yeah. we wrap things up, uh, Stephen, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months are going to hold for yourself for valued and what you really hope to be able to achieve in that time? Great question, especially given the circumstances. Uh, there is a degree of uncertainty. There's a degree of uncertainty in every single business right now. But I, I'd say it as an opportunity as well. Um, we, as valued, we have to get close to our clients. We are close to our clients, but we have to get closer to our clients. We have to help them to get through the situation. I think when we get through the situation, whatever time frame we put on that, we're going to have even better relationships with clients. Um, we're going to have streamlined our processes. We're actually we're going to look at things differently. Like we're all working from home now, it's going to question why do I have to have an office with so many desks in? Why can't people work from home? I I think this next twelve months is a period of change, and for me, it's about us as leaders embracing that change, seeing the opportunities that we've got, having better relationships with our community, whether that be customers, suppliers, uh, our associated networks, and actually taking that time back to understand what we want in life. A lot of people that I've spoke to over the last however many years, they turn around and they say, wouldn't it be good just to get off the bus for five minutes, just to pause life? Actually, this three-week lockdown we're in currently, that is a bit of a pause on life. So I'm saying it's an opportunity for me as the leader of value to evaluate what I want to happen within the business, but also to evaluate and help my clients evaluate what they want in their businesses. So it is, as I say, a bit of an uncertain time, but I, I see it as a, a massive, uh, massively positive time as well. Yes, absolutely. And let's hope that the um, the opportunities do start to um, manifest themselves sooner rather than later. Um, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you on the uh, the programme today. And I think it would be fantastic as well to have you back on in a few months time, just to look back at this respectively and really see how things have panned out in that respect. Thank you so much for coming on the programme. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. No problem whatsoever. Um, we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. It, the pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. 
Uh, He's to blame. Yeah, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, privilege I'm sure no doubt to serve as captain and whether you like it or not you become the focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role <laughs> um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying: okay, if I'm going to do this job. What is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of 
well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that would that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership. I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died, 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, so I should 
and I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly... Um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.